I screwed up. I spent the first 32 years of my life putting myself in this position to be a state senator, to make all these changes that I wanted to make. The sky's the limit. And you know what? I ruined all of it, but I'm not gonna dwell. How do I mitigate the problem? How do I get the least sentence that I can? How do I not make this worse? And I kind of realized that if I dwelled on it, it wasn't gonna help anybody. Hey everyone, New York City Council Member Chris Marte here. Welcome to this episode of The Hardest Step, a podcast from The Lost Debate. Cost is actually traveling right now, so Moyo, our producer, will be filling in. Hey Chris, I'm Moyo Areolu, and I'm really excited to be behind the mic with you, speaking with our guest today. Yeah, I'm excited too. Today, we're joined by former Missouri senator who found himself in federal prison after lying to the feds regarding his political campaign. That's right, Chris. Jeff Smith served a year and a day behind bars after pleading guilty to two felony counts of conspiracy to obstruct justice. But he also has extensive experience working on behalf of his St. Louis community. He has a passion for urban education and has worked as a college professor for years. While in prison, he found his calling as a criminal justice reformer after witnessing many of the abuses those incarcerated experience. He narrates all of this in his critically acclaimed book, Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. Jeff, thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm great. Hey, Chris. Hey, Moyo. Great to meet you guys. We, we kind of know your story a little bit about your political campaign. Uh, but what were you doing before that, before you decided to run for Congress? So I went to the University of North Carolina, majored in Black Studies, came back to St. Louis to work in the public schools in St. Louis. So I was doing that. And then I ended up co-founding a charter school um, in uh, North St. Louis and got really involved in urban education. I was also getting my PhD in political science. And while I was finishing my PhD, I was teaching as an adjunct uh, at Washington University here in, in St. Louis and coached basketball at a boys club during the summers and the winters in St. Louis. That's awesome. And so what made you want to run for office? You know, that seems like a pretty good, wholesome life. Yeah, I had a great life. And then I screwed it all up. You know what I'm saying? Being an elected official yourself. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I was in kind of a unique situation in that. Well, first of all, let me talk about the kind of policy things that motivated me. Mm. Number one, I was pissed off about the war. Uh, This is like 2004. We had just gone to Iraq. And Afghanistan made some sense to me, and Iraq just seemed like a war of choice that we didn't need to get ourselves embroiled in. I was a little bit irritated that there were so few young people in Congress, right? Like at that point, and now we have something like $29 trillion of debt. But at that point, I think we had about $5.5 trillion of debt. And when you like parcel that out among everybody in the country, that meant that everybody owed something like 30,000 bucks. And we kept piling on more and more. And again, that was like $24 trillion ago. So to me, it just felt like we were mortgaging the future of the country because nobody comes up to you every day if you're 25 years old and you're paying your taxes and nobody says, we're going to need a surcharge because we've got a surtax. That's going to be an extra... 1500 bucks for you this year. No one ever says that. It's just an invisible tax on young people 
the average age of Congress when I ran was something like 57 years old. And most of them, they're not going to be paying off the debt. It's the next generation and the next generation that are going to be paying it in the form of higher taxes every year of your life. And that's money, if you, you know, basic opportunity cost, right? If you're paying those extra thousands of dollars every year in taxes, you're not saving to buy a house. You're not saving for college tuition. You're not saving to have a kid or to get married or all the things, you know, that, or, or for rent, right? All the things that make it so difficult for people to get into the middle class or stay in the middle class. So for me, that just felt like a generational crime to load up the next generation with that huge burden because the baby boomers just kept wanting to spend mostly on themselves. So those were a couple of the main reasons that I ran for office. The timing, I knew I wasn't really ready to run for Congress, 29 years old, but we had an open seat. And I was a political science professor, so I knew a little bit about the way politics works. And it's almost impossible to beat an incumbent. That district had had two incumbents during the previous 54 years. So I figured if I didn't take my shot while the seat was open, my whole life might pass me by before I had another shot to try again. So I didn't need a lot of money. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I didn't have a lot of big commitments other than to teach a little bit. And so honest to God, when I was teaching, I was really just recruiting interns and volunteers that year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I was going to ask, what did your support system look like? Um, was your family involved? Did they support you at all? And and talk a little bit about your aides and just the staffers that helped you on that I can't campaign. tell if this was a loaded question if you're messing with me right now when you ask about my family because <laughs> I went to my parents. I told them I was going to do this. And my dad looked at me and he's like, I just think this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And my mom's reply was, if I hear that you have asked any of our relatives for money, I will disown you. That is a complete, Uh (laughs) that's a complete embarrassment to our family for you to go out on a lark. You're not running for office. You're just running away from adulthood. Wow. So my parents were not real enthusiastic about the idea. Usually when you have a situation like that in life where your parents are like against something, you can go to your grandparents because grandparents are about like, they love you unconditionally, right? So I went to my grandma at that point. She was, I think, 94, 95, but in amazing shape. And she exercised every morning. If you asked her the secret to her longevity, she always said an hour on the treadmill every morning and two vodka martinis every night. And she was an amazing woman. She was on her fourth bridge game at that point. Because her first bridge game, everybody died. Her next bridge game, everybody died. Her next bridge. And then she just kept outliving everybody. So she's playing bridge. And one of her bridge partners comes to her and says, Ida, I got a letter. It's a solicitation. And it's from your grandson. He's running for Congress. Where do I send the money? And my grandma said, if I were you, I would save your money. So my real source of support were my former students. I'd been teaching for about five years at that point and ended up, I had about 700 volunteers overall. And about half of them were kids that I had taught over the years. And so tell us about the race. So you're running against pretty much a guy from a political dynasty and there are eight other candidates. What was the dynamics? And what was like, how yeah, was so I was going to say running against a Carnahan in Missouri 
It was a little bit like running against a Cuomo in New York, but I guess that's a little bit different now <laughs> than it was a couple of years ago. But anyway. Well, just for now. <laughs> but I ran against a fam, a guy whose father was governor, two-term governor in the state. His mom was a United States senator. His grandpa was a congressman. His sister was secretary of state. And perhaps not surprisingly, his brother was a very successful lobbyist. So they knew what they were doing. And it was one of those things where I would never have run against him one-on-one because I knew I wouldn't have a shot. I couldn't get enough votes to beat him one-on-one. But as more and more people entered the race, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, then I was like, look, I think I've got the energy to knock on enough doors, literally, such that if everybody I meet over the course of the year votes for me, I might have a chance to win because the vote was going to be so fragmented in a 10-person primary that it would reduce the potential percentage needed to win to you know, 22 23%. So that was what my candidacy was premised on, like a, a split-up vote, and the fact that he would leave an ideological vacuum in the race. That is, half the candidates in the Democratic primary were pro-life. And a lot of them were just very conservative Democrats. So I ran as like the staunchest anti-war voice, kind of giving a progressive alternative in the field. And there was also a generational vacuum, which is, you know, the other big name candidates were all in their 40s, 50s, 60s. So I figured if I could just mobilize the young vote, I might have a shot. And a lot of people have tried this kind of thing and failed. And ultimately, I failed, too. I lost by about one percentage point. I did the same thing. I ran against a two-term incumbent, ran as the progressive grassroots candidate against the political machine downtown, and we fell short by 1% of the vote, 200 votes. And so I know... I know what it feels like running that energetic race and just falling short at, you know, at the last moment. Did you know, did you feel the momentum? Did, did you think you were going to get over the top or did you feel like you might come up a bit short? Where was your head? So in the beginning, no one knew my name. No one has ever heard of me. And then going down to the last four or three weeks, people were like, oh, you're that young guy running for a council, right? What's your name? Marty? And, and I was like, close enough, close <laughs> enough. Uh, but it was just like, we had all these interns just knocking on every single door, like wearing dog uniform, like dog walking uniforms to uh, get into like buildings in FIDI and Tribeca. Like we, we pulled out all the stops and we had an amazing GOTV. And, you know, that it was just like a beautiful energy, right? Like I've never felt that high of like, like momentum and like youthfulness ever again. And, you know, we, we thought we had it, you know, there was, there was a lot of candidates in that race too. And unfortunately it was those extra candidates that took away from the anti-establishment vote that we would have gotten to win. God, I love that story. I love the dog walking uniforms. That's hilarious. We always, I'm still close with a lot of the kids that worked on my campaigns and we always laugh about the ridiculous I mean, mostly, mostly innocuous, but the little things we did that were maybe a little bit shady just to try to like get people to listen to us or get votes. <laughs> I had one kid who was like one of my interns and his name was Farzam. He was Persian and he was like working in the Italian American part of the city and nobody would answer the phone or come out 
you know, of, of the doorbell when he said, my name is Farzam. So he was, you know, kind of had brown skin. Uh, and, and so we would just told him to say his name was Frankie and talk about his grandma's pasta sauce. And he started doing that. <laughs> and then everybody answered the door for him and everybody came out. So, I mean, the little things you do just to try to get voters to, to care. Yeah. So yeah. we had an amazing group. But during the last few weeks of my campaign, I screwed up pretty bad. It's a long story, but let me try to get it down to two minutes for you. A guy who was a political consultant, kind of a hanger on, semi-professional political consultant, approached two of my aides and he said, look, I want to help you guys. I want to put out a postcard about Carnahan's crappy attendance record because Carnahan had missed more votes in the state house than almost any legislator. And my aides came to me and said, hey, can we give him this information that we have that we've been trying to get the media to write about for the last year? And I knew there was something fishy. I wasn't an expert on campaign finance law. I'm not a lawyer myself, and it was my first campaign. But I knew it was like fishy. So instead of saying yes, but I didn't want to say no, because I wanted the information to be disseminated. And I said to my aides, don't tell me any details. And they said again, well, does that mean we should give them the information? I'm like, listen, man, are you stupid? Did you hear what I said? I don't want to know what you do. <laughs> the whole conversation probably lasted 45 seconds, but it was perhaps the most consequential 45 seconds of my life. A couple of weeks later, nothing had happened with a postcard. And so I got up on the steps of the old courthouse downtown and I said in front of the TV cameras, Russ Carnahan's a nice guy and he comes from a wonderful family, but he doesn't go to work. And here's the details on his attendance record. And then the very next day, this crappy little three by five postcard comes out, which lacks the requisite paid for by disclaimer at the bottom. And it says the same figures about Carnahan's voting record that I had said the day before, which clued Carnahan into the fact that there might have been some kind of coordination here. And he filed a complaint with the Federal Elections Commission. Then the election happened. I, I was winning the whole night, and then I lost at about five in the morning. He pulled ahead. And I asked him a day after the campaign ended, would you agree to drop the complaint that you filed with the Federal Election Commission? Because I knew that my aides had dealt with a guy who probably produced that postcard. And he said, he looked at his brother, and his brother said, look, man, I'm sorry, but the missile's already left the silo. And then the Federal Election Commission asked for a response to 15 questions. I filed an affidavit with them. 14 of my answers were true. One was not. I responded to a question about whether I knew about the postcard and said I didn't know anything. You know, you signed it denying knowledge. But in that moment, can you try to take us back to that moment? Did you kind of just brush it off? Or, you know, did you think nothing of it? Or did you know I'm signing this, but I'm doing it knowing the truth? So it's one of those things where it's like I had a, I probably had 50 things swirling through my head in like 30 mm -hmm. seconds. And my lawyer puts it in front of me. She had prepared it. And it said, the one line I remember lingering on it, it said, I do not know who financed, designed, printed, produced, or disseminated the postcard. And I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, do I know for sure these things? No, I don't really know who did this. That's why I told my staff, don't tell me anything, just in case I ever got in this situation. I'm thinking about the dozens of other people I'd known in politics that had done something similar to that. 
I'm thinking about the hundreds, if not thousands of complaints that got filed every cycle with the Federal Election Commission and the fact that almost none of them ever go anywhere. I'm thinking about the fact that I just spent most of my savings on the campaign. And now since I lost, I was never going to be able to get that money back. You can't fundraise if you lose. If I would have won, I could have fundraised and maybe repaid my debt, but now it was all gone. I'm thinking about the fact that I'm moving. I just had agreed to go teach at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and I didn't know if I'd ever come back to St. Louis. I'm thinking about Mm. whether I can afford a big legal battle, which the answer was no. (laughs) I'm thinking about the campaign that we had just run and the fact that it was so beautiful in the same way that you described about yours especially with all those young people who put so much faith in, in, the, in me and, and the campaign. And I didn't want to tarnish all that. So in 20 seconds or whatever the pause was between when I read it and actually signed it, I thought about all those things. And then before I could think anymore, in the same way that you might jump off a cliff into to water or jump into a pool that you know is going to be cold, And if you think anymore, you're not going to jump. So you just got to jump. I willed my hand to the paper and I signed it before I could think anymore. And three years later, two years later, I got elected to the state Senate. Three years later, the feds dropped the FEC complaint and I thought I was home free. And then four years and 10 months after the underlying conduct, my best friend approached me and started asking me about that postcard. And he said the feds had knocked on his door and he wasn't home, but they left a card. And he was afraid they were going to be asking about this event from five years, four years and 10 months earlier. And we started talking about it. And over the next couple of months, we talked about it a lot. And little did I know that that entire time, my former best friend was wearing a wire. Did it linger in the back of your mind when you're like, all right, I'm one of the hottest state senators now in Missouri. I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. I'm finally here. Did you ever think about that time when you did lie? I did until the Federal Election Commission dismissed the complaint and said, you know, no finding. And then I thought to myself, and it's funny because my second campaign, when different people approach with different semi-shady propositions, every time I was like, no. No, we're not doing anything like that ever again, because I had this thing hanging over me and it made me sick on my stomach, you know, to think that like, gosh, what if that comes back and gets me? So once that complaint got dismissed, then finally I was like, I can finally turn the page and close that chapter in my life and know that like, that's how I'm going to conduct myself because the stress of that, it weighs on you, right? So Anyway, the reason I kept saying four years and 10 months is because the statute of limitations on the underlying conduct was five years. So the thing, the craziest part of this whole story was that the guy who had done that postcard, the political consultant who had done that postcard years earlier, when my friend came to see me to talk about it, he said to me, guess what happened? I said, what? He said, Skip, the guy who did that postcard, the feds just picked him up for cocaine distribution, heroin distribution, wire fraud, bank fraud, mail fraud, illegal weapons possession. And now he's the chief suspect in the car bombing that nearly killed his ex-wife's divorce lawyer. And I'm like, I wanted to win that race so bad that I let my staff get involved with this monster. 
I'm very curious about your now relationship, if there's even a relationship with this best friend of yours at the time. But I want to go a little bit back and I want to know about your experience as a state senator from the years 2006 to 2009. And, you know, you were often referred as a rising star. Can you talk a little bit about like the legislation that you worked on during that time? Sure. So I worked on a bunch of stuff. I worked on a lot of economic development to focus on St. Louis City. We got a big problem of urban sprawl. We're not, you know, in Manhattan, everybody wants to be, not as much since the pandemic, but I think it's coming back, but everybody wants to be in the urban core. And so the further away from you that you get from Chris Marty's council district, the less desirable or expensive most of the real estate is, right? Like, is anything more expensive than Tribeca? No. (laughs) Maybe Battery Park City, which is also in my district. And then the further out you go, the longer people's commute, the, the less expensive it is to live there. St. Louis has a different issue. We have sprawl that's so bad that the city proper only accounts for one-tenth of the population of the metro area. Because of that sprawl, I wanted to really push developers, incentivize developers for environmental reasons, ecological reasons, but mostly just wanting to reinvest in the urban core because our region cannot succeed with a big hole in the middle. So I worked a lot on that worked a lot on education reform to try to provide incentives for math and science teachers in particular to teach in St. Louis public schools. But then the most prescient thing I did, I guess, I worked on criminal justice reform. I had a district that had more people incarcerated than any other district in the state. And I worked on a couple bills, one in particular, to help people who had had done time or were going to do time for an inability to pay child support. A lot of these people had gotten laid off from industrial or manufacturing jobs. St. Louis used to be the second biggest automotive manufacturing city in the country, and now we're way down the list. And so I was in the Senate during a time that thousands of men had lost jobs working in the auto plants, gone from making 50, 60,000 bucks a year to having the no college degree, some without even a high school diploma, making 15, 20,000 bucks a year. But it would take three years to get a child support order modified. And during that time, if you weren't paying your full child support, you could get charged with criminal non-support and you'd go to prison for it. And what's the one place you can't pay child support from? Prison. And then you come out and you've got the stigma of prison. You have a hard time finding a place to live. You have a real hard time finding a job with employers doing background checks. And then you'll never be involved in your kid's life if you're not paying child support, because in most cases, the mom won't let you be around if you're not paying your child support. So I worked to pass legislation in 2009 to provide an alternative sentence for mostly men who are caught up in that predicament so they could get vocational training, parenting classes, substance use programming, whatever they needed to get back on their feet and a misdemeanor instead of getting the felony conviction that makes it so hard both in prison and then for years afterwards to get back on your feet and and actually pay your child support. Little did I know, once again, that just a few days after that bill was signed into law, the feds came and knocked on my door. And how was it like? You know, we we kind of see it in the films. I remember hearing the story of my brother when NYPD broke down his door and was going through all his sneakers to find any little evidence of him dealing, trying to find any weapons. How was your like? Man, they they, they didn't break down my door. I'm white. 
You know, they okay. don't do that to white people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just kidding, but not really. But so look, they uh, let us know. Tell us because it's, it's a much different experience. Right. Yeah. Chris, I know Koss has been very vocal about that as well. So let us know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they came at like 630 in the morning. I had a unique situation. I was like delirious. I had had broken ribs from a basketball game the night before that I didn't know yet were broken and had taken a painkiller and just terrible set of circumstances. And so when they came and knocked on the door, I let him into the house, totally confused at the whole scenario. They asked me a bunch of questions and I basically thought I signed an affidavit almost five years ago saying I didn't know anything. If I tell him now, wait, here's exactly what happened. Then they'll get me for the affidavit from five years ago. So I'm just going to stick to my pact with the other three guys that knew about this. And we had all agreed. We would just say, we don't, we don't know anymore about it. And uh, so that's what I did. Were you still in communication with those aides or not um, as close? And I called my lawyer. My lawyer called the U.S. attorney. My lawyer came back and said, so I got some bad news for you. Your best friend's been wearing a wire, you know, for the last couple of months. And that's about the biggest gut punch, you know, you can get. I went to go tell my parents. They only live like five minutes away, but that was the longest five minutes of my life just driving over there. And I was like, look, I made some mistakes five years ago and it's going to get real bad and I'm probably going to have to go to prison. And my mom was like, I told you not to run for office. How many times did I tell you that you were going to get mixed up in something like this? I mean, I guess that's what any Jewish mom would say. (laughs) My dad was more constructive. My dad was like, do you need money? You know, do you have a lawyer? And then I drove down and I got a new lawyer. And um, at that point, it's just about, for me, I'm an optimistic person. And my wheels started turning. I screwed up. I spent the first... 32 years of my life, putting myself in this position to be a state senator, to make all these changes that I wanted to make. The sky's the limit. And you know what? I ruined all of it, but I'm not going to dwell. How do I mitigate the problem? How do I get the least sentence that I can? How do I not make this worse? And I kind of realized that if I dwelled on it, it wasn't going to help anybody. During that time, did you ever try to speak with your best friend at that time? Or were you kind of told not to speak, you know, have communication with him? I did not try to speak with him at that time. And I have not spoken with him since. Ultimately, 300 people wrote letters to the judge in my case. We put together a proposal for me to coach basketball and teach civics at the school that I co-founded for two years, you know, for free as a kind of potential way to give back instead of going to prison and instead of costing taxpayers money by going to prison could could save money. So those 300 people that wrote letters in support of that, I'll, I'll do anything for any of those people. When they call me for anything, I don't care what it is. How did your constituents react? I would say tons of people reached out saying they didn't understand uh, why this was something that would require prison. I think a lot of people, particularly in today's day and age, see a lot worse. And a lot of them would say like, well, did you steal money? And I was like, nah. In fact, when I got to prison, that was like one of the funniest conversations I had was this one guy was like, but how much did you get on the way out? Like there was like some safe where like once you found out you were going to prison, you could just like go and get a hundred grand of like, you know, cash and just 
get in a suitcase on your way out of the office. I'm like, nah, that's, that's, I didn't get any money. I'm like, it was a postcard. I lied about whether I knew about this postcard. And this guy in prison was like, man, you a dumb motherfucker, man. <laughs> you got locked up. You didn't get no money. <laughs> so I would say disbelief by some others thought I got what I deserved. There was always a group of people that found me arrogant because I didn't wait my turn. I didn't run for the low-level office before running for higher office. And I'm sure some of those people rejoiced in my demise. But I would say, broadly speaking, I think a lot of people, and I'm sorry to be immodest, but a lot of people just thought like, this is disappointing. I'm really sad because he was had a good heart and was trying to do a lot of good things for the city instead of like a big fundraiser every year at the like high brow place i would do like an annual three-on-three basketball tournament that i played in and just it was a whole day of you know giveaways and free medical care and all that stuff and i think a lot of people were just like this is unfortunate and sad and disappointing a lot of people were disappointed in me um and i think a lot of people were just disappointed in the lost potential of how I might have been able to help the city. Yeah. And then when you get into prison, is it what you expected? You know, you worked on criminal justice reform. You probably met a lot of people who are incarcerated. Like when you were there, you know, sleeping on that bunk bed, like, is that what you imagined prison was? So there's some things about prison that are nothing like you imagine. There are other things that are exactly like you imagine. And I should probably start with my intake. You know, like I get there and when the gates clang shut behind you, that's like a moment that if I close my eyes right now, I can see it like it happened two minutes ago. I go to the COs and the COs are like, you know, I was in Southeast Kentucky and COs like strip. So I did. And he's like, let me see your wallet. And I'm like, my wallet? Like, I, I didn't bring my wallet in here. I left it at the desk where they told me. And he's like, nah, man, your prison wallet. And I'm like, what? And he's like, open up your goddamn butt cheeks. And I'm like, oh, I'm in a different world now. And Mm. it was totally dehumanizing. And it was the first step in a long series of deeply dehumanizing experiences that characterized the American prison experience, right? Like, you don't have to take off all your clothes and get greens or grays or orange in Denmark or Sweden or Norway or Finland when you go to prison. And that takes a while to recover from. After that, you know, I went over to the to the woman who was doing the forms or the paperwork and I'll never forget this. She was like, you know, hot and weight. And I'm like, you know, five, six, one seventeen. She's like, education uh, level. I was like PhD. And she's like, hmm, last profession. I'm like, state senator. She's like, all right. You want to play games? You can play games all you want. We got ones in here that think they're Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, so you had a, it was it was a very unique experience for you. Was, I yeah, guess we can say. Yeah, and then you know you go up the yard, and it was a little bit like Shawshank. You go up a little place, and everyone's screaming and hollering at you because you're the new guys, and everyone's yelling numbers. And everybody, when they find a match, then the dude that's walking up the yard for the first time like fist bumps the other guys with the same number. And I'm like, what are you people talking about? I was so confused. And it took me two, three weeks to understand what was happening there. Those three digits were the last three digits of your prison number. So I was 366 And those last three digits tell everybody that's where you're from. 
So everybody who's getting a match, that's like, okay, well, those are my homeboys. If something jumps off, those are the guys that are going to look out for me. I got to look out for them. So it told me that for a lot of the guys that I was there with who didn't have all the advantages that I'd had in life, that was the closest thing they would ever get to like a reunion because those were guys that they had known, you know, growing up. Did anyone know who you were when you were coming in? Did anyone be like, is that a senator? Yeah. So I had asked to go like an hour away. Instead, they sent me like nine hours away. But there were three people there that were from St. Louis. And one of them was my constituent who had been to my three-on-three basketball tournaments. And another one, he got the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the newspaper. He got it sent to him in prison. And so he knew my demise had been covered extensively in the paper. So two of the three guys from St. Louis knew the story. Like, how was the experience? You build relationship with these guys? Like, you were there just for a year, but it's also a really long year. <laughs> how did, right. How did you navigate that year? So how did I navigate? I got really lucky. They sent me to the loading dock when they found out that I was taking notes. They wanted to give me a hard job that would wear me out. It's a long story, but they found out that maybe I might be writing a book and they didn't want me to do that. So they sent me to work on the, in the food service warehouse on the loading dock, thinking that that would suck. And it did suck because the bags of rice and beans and flour and sugar were 100-pound bags. And when I went in, I was only 117. The good thing was my colleagues were the six biggest guys on the yard. So when you go into prison as scrawny as I was, it's not a bad thing to become buddies with like six of the biggest guys in the yard. So that helped me build relationships. Second thing that helped me build relationships was basketball. Um, I'm a point guard. So if you're a point guard, for those of you who play basketball, you know, like you're distributing the ball, you're passing, you're helping other people be better. And I, I never cared about scoring. And so that's a good way to kind of like build relationships with people is to get them the ball and help them be the score, help them be the man. So um, that was good. And then the other thing that helped me out was like that guy had read the newspaper article about me. So he knew that my best friend wore the wire on me, but that I didn't wear a wire on other people. So that helped me. Yeah. And you talk about that, you know, you're kind of helping out with the kitchen area, but you talk about prison was a very dehumanizing experience. So not just for you, but right for the other inmates. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the lack of training that it provided? Yeah. You know, it just kind of wants to keep these inmates in the same system. You know, they're not improving their lives. So first of all, the conditions like the food, most of the food was long past the expiration date. And I know because I brought it in. And so like, even when it came in, it was already past the expiration date. And sometimes by a year or two years or more, you asked about training. There was almost no meaningful rehabilitative programming there. There were three things that they offered during my year there. It was a GED course that was taught by a guy who just finished the GED course. I applied five times to teach different courses there, and they never even replied, which I'm not saying that from the perspective of like, woe is me. I'm just saying it from the perspective of they had somebody with a decade of college teaching experience, but instead they yeah, had so true. put someone who had just got his GED to teach the course. He may have been fine, but to me, it just was emblematic of just a lack of concern 
you know, for the people that were trying to better themselves. Did you worry that maybe some of the other inmates felt that you felt maybe superior to them? A few of the guys felt maybe a little bit that they were cleaner than I was. Like my celly showered three or four times a day. So instead of feeling like I thought I was better than them, a couple of them distinctly felt like I wasn't good enough for them because my hygiene wasn't as good as theirs because they thought that like my celly, he's like, you need to shower when you wake up. You need to shower when you get back from work. You need to shower when you get back from basketball and you need to shower before you go to bed. Look, in prison, you can't control like barely anything. And so some people fall back on really wanting to control the things they can control, which is the cleanliness of your cell and the cleanliness of your body. Overall, I think the thing that maybe, I'm sure some people maybe thought that I thought I was better than them, but I played all the sports on the yard. I played softball. I played basketball. I played everything with everybody. And the other white collar offenders never were anywhere. They just avoided everything and just stayed in their cell all the time and definitely wouldn't play a sport because people ask me, you know, what's basketball like in prison? I'm like, have you ever played football? Um, (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) so I think there was some measure of respect just by the fact that, you know, I was the only white guy in the prison basketball league and the smallest guy. And to me, sports in prison were a very sacred time because It was the only time when you don't think about where you are. So I think that probably, you know, maybe helped me. No, I was going to say one thing you did notice while you were inside was the everyone's hustle, right? And everyone's creativity of doing what they could with what they had. And that kind of inspired you when you when you got out of it to to start nonprofit. So can you tell us the the transition of seeing this in prison and then figuring out what you wanted to do with that that experience when you came out definitely there is no concept that you would learn at columbia b school or harvard business school that you couldn't learn inside federal prison whether it's supply chain management or new product launch or promotional incentives or viral you know buzz marketing whatever it is i heard every one of those concepts explained lucidly inside federal prison the sad thing was that there is almost no training, as, as y'all mentioned, to help people build a foundation to be successful in those things. Your brother, Koss, is so exceptional in that he came out and he had a plan and he took advantage of a skill that he learned inside, one that I learned inside too. I thought about doing a workout gym when I came home. It was the best shape I've ever been in my life. I was in such good shape that we were at a dinner party like a year after I got out. And this other woman said to my wife, man, you know, your husband, you know, he stayed in pretty good shape, you know, uh, when he was in prison. huh?" (laughs) And my wife is like, yeah, sometimes I want him to like forge a checker, do something little just to go back for like six months so he can get cut up again. Stay in shape. (laughs) Instead of those exercise retreats, just go back in. (laughs) I was like, that wasn't funny. But um, so. But you're right. There is so little training to help people realize their entrepreneurial dreams. Other than the GED, there was a hydroponics course to teach you how to grow tomatoes in water. Like that's going to prepare you for successful reentry. And then about three weeks before we hit the door, they brought us into this computer room. It was the only time the whole year that, that I saw anyone go in this computer room. And it was a bank of 12 unused computers. And the CEO was like, 
you see that little button on the bottom right? Push that button. That's going to turn your computer on. So I see this guy next to me just doing the mouse in circles. He was so fascinated. He was mesmerized by the mouse and the fact that he could put his hand in a circle and then the arrow would go in a circle by the screen, right? Because this was 2010. He'd been locked up like 16, 17 years. He'd never been on a computer. And after like a couple minutes, he says, hey, CO, when I put my hand like this, the arrow on the computer and the CO says, shut the fuck up. And we sat there in silence for another 45 minutes. At the end of 45 minutes, the CO says, y'all remember that little button on the bottom right? We'll push it again and get the fuck back to your cell. So that was the one hour that the prison had to teach people the basics of going on a job site and filling out an application online. That made me sad because there was so much entrepreneurial energy. People only understood entrepreneurship, though, in the context of the drug trade. You know, they understood the math of like, if I cut up a rock into 20 little, and I get into 20 little bags and I sell for five bucks a bag, you know, like, and I'll give the first one free every time and I'll have this, you know, they understood all that. And some of them said, well, I want to do that same thing, but I want to do it for mowing lawns. They all had visions of how they could be successful. Unfortunately, there was nobody there who could say, this is how you write up a business plan. You talked about, you know, using the computer and, you know, some of these men, they haven't used computer. Technology has changed. And I think Koss has mentioned when he came out of prison, the iPhone was out. So he had to learn how to use that and adapt. Was the obviously it was just a year, but did anything change drastically for you? You know, a lot could happen in a year. Maybe it was a relationship in your family or did anything change for you when you came out of prison? One thing that I should remark on is that my girlfriend had moved into my house two days before the feds knocked on my door. And when I left my parents' house, before I went to the lawyer, I went by her office and I told her that she should probably just come back to my house and get her stuff before she unpacked her boxes because I was probably going to prison. And unlike so many people who go to prison in this country, she came and visited me. And she stayed with me and she's now my wife and the mother of our two kids. Amazing. And so that kind of consistent support is something that not enough people in prison have in this country. And it's obviously very special if it's a spouse, you know, a a significant other, a partner in that way. But almost anyone can do that for someone in prison. Be a pen pal or be part of a program, you know, with a church or, or some other nonprofit to visit people, to be a lifeline for them, because to have that kind of support, to know that there's someone rooting for you who cares about you, it can make all the difference in the world. Because the cost Martys out there are exceptions. That kind of drive and ambition and just planning and ability to execute. When you come out and you've got the psychological scars of the trauma that most people had before they even go to prison and get exacerbated while they're there. And then you add on all the extra collateral consequences of felony convictions, like not being able to rent most apartments or access food stamps in some states or get a job. All of that adds up and really puts people behind the eight ball such that we shouldn't be surprised that the majority of people who come out of prison in this country end up going back. Did you remain friends with anyone that from the inside? I did. I've got 
three or four friends that I met uh, inside. Yeah, four guys that I still keep in touch with. One was my celly. One is a guy who mentored me while I was inside and showed me kind of the ways of, of the prison. He was my supervisor on the loading dock, and he taught me how to, how to stack stuff and how to lift stuff and not have a back injury, given that the stuff we were lifting weighed almost what I did. And he helped, you know, he just helped me. He helped teach me about forgiveness, too. One time, uh, this guy was messing with me in the warehouse, and he was like, you want me to take care of your boy? And I was like, what? He's like, your boy, man, who wore the wire. Mm. And I'm like, I knew he meant get rid of him, right? Have somebody do something to him. And I didn't want to look really soft. So instead of saying no, I was like, really? I'm like, you know people? He's like, oh, I got people. (laughs) And so I indulged that conversation because I was scared of looking soft. I knew I looked soft already because they knew who I was. My nickname was Senator, right? And so I had different clothes when I got there because I self-surrendered. Nobody else at the prison self-surrendered. They all came from county. So they were wearing, when they got introduced to the, to the yard, the, the whatever color they came in with from county, and they noticed all those nuances. So that marked me as soft from the jump. So when that conversation happened, my warehouse supervisor, he pulled me aside. He was like, don't ever, ever indulge them. Don't ever have that conversation with them. Number one, because even in here, people could have a wire. He's like, you can't joke about stuff like that. They could come put you away for like planning a, you know, a murder. And then he said, but more importantly, whatever happened with your boy, you got to put that out of your mind. Because I thought about my cousin for the first four years that I was here, because he's the one who told the feds on me and told them where my stash was. And I woke up one morning and I was like drenched in sweat and I was like strangling my pillow like it was him. He's like, I wanted to kill him for my first four years here. And eventually I wanted to kill myself. And then one day I let it go. And every day has been a little easier than the day before. So I learned so much wisdom in that year. And that's just one example. Did you forgive your ex-best friend? I did. Or have you forgive? It doesn't mean I want to be his best how friend. Was that? It doesn't mean I want to be his yeah, best yeah. friend. That, that's, yeah, completely understandable. But how was it while you were in prison or was it when you returned that you were able to process all of that? It was a process. Or is, or are you still processing it? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say that day when my friend said that to me in the joint, that was the first day of the rest of my life in a lot of respects because I needed to hear that to turn the page and to realize how unproductive that time would be for me. Has it been a straight line? No. Progress in life is never a straight line. Mental health, behavioral health, it's not a straight line. So yeah, I had moments where a little thing would happen or I'd hear something that you know he did. And, and, and in fact, four years ago, I'm pretty confident he kept me from getting a job that had been offered to me, but right at the last possible moment, it was withdrawn. And so I had a little bit of a relapse. And then in the way that I've been so blessed in life, things ended up working out and I found something better. And now I'm happier than ever. So I should never have indulged those terrible impulses where I thought, oh, I can't believe that 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 happened because there's a plan and it all worked out. And I've had more detours than your average person, but 
I've also seen more and probably gained more life experience than your average person with my background. And I hope that that's helped me do the work that I do today. A lot of which is second chance employment work in my community, recruiting companies to hire second chance job seekers and raising money for reentry programs uh, across the city. Do you want to say the name of the organization for the listeners? Yeah, it's called the Transformative Workforce Academy. It's our second chance employment hub in our region. And the men and women that have come through there since 2020, only 2% of them have gone back to prison. So if you're interested in supporting it in any way, uh, if you're in St. Louis or, and you, you're an employer or you want to volunteer, or if you're anywhere in the, in the world and you want to donate money, SLU, S-L-U, St. Louis University, slu.edu slash second chance. And you're also the executive director of the Missouri Workforce Housing Association. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there and, you know, trying to provide affordable housing? Yes, I'm executive director of an umbrella group, a statewide group called Missouri Workforce Housing Association. We're an umbrella group of 200 plus organizations that all care about preserving and rehabbing and building quality, affordable, safe housing. So we fight for the state low-income housing tax credit program, the affordable housing assistance program, a couple different state programs that help give people who are struggling a decent place to live. So I love that. And I also work with a nonprofit called Appleseed that we passed legislation uh, two years ago to provide free feminine hygiene products to every incarcerated woman in the state. Most county jails didn't even provide that in Missouri. And then last year, passed legislation following New York's footsteps to build a prison nursery at our women's Mm -hmm. prison so that women could spend the first 18 months of their baby's life alongside their baby and then walk out of prison with the baby in their arms instead of what we have been doing, which is taking away their baby in the first couple hours of the baby's life. Do you ever want to run again? You know, I feel like you're so engaged right now in legislation and criminal justice reform. Like, do you see yourself being a politician again? So the day that I go to the courthouse to file for office again, I will bump into my wife there filing for divorce. (laughs) So no, I don't think about running myself. And I honestly, like, I feel so lucky to be able to get to work on so many of the same issues that motivated me to run for office in the first place, just from a little different angle. And without as many people shooting at me as there were, you know, metaphorically speaking, you know, when you're a quote unquote rising star in politics, you're trying to get legislation passed. You got a lot of people kind of like who don't want to see you succeed. And now people understand that I'm never running for office again. And I'm just trying to do some good things. And it helps me, especially in a bipartisan way, attract all kinds of people to to these causes who understand that I don't need to see my name in the lights anymore. And I want to lift up the legislators who are doing this work. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Like, I know not lie or not tell your staffers to to not work with someone or not give you the information, but what other advice? You know, there's a lot of advice I would have given myself even four years ago, but is there anything you, you would tell your past self? Wow, I haven't thought about this. So one thing is to never do anything for anybody else with any expectation that they'll reciprocate. But if they do reciprocate, be pleasantly surprised. Because the people I know that are the most bitter in this world, they view life as a big transaction. And if they do something for someone, then they'll get something back at some point and they just end up bitter and angry. Yeah. 
So anytime I do something for anyone or agree to something, I do it because I want to do it and because they deserve the help, not because I think there's anything in it for me. And, and then sometimes people will do something back and it's the greatest thing in the world. Another thing I'd say is just think about your relationship to time. When I was in the Senate, I did not spend the time. My priorities were so out of whack with where they should have been. When my parents, when my dad would call me in the middle of the day, I'd probably, especially during my campaigns, it'd be like, dad, I can't talk to you during the day. You know that. I'll call you at night after I can't talk to voters anymore. And that's insane. And I never had enough time for anything. I was always trying to squeeze too much into any one day. And then when I got to prison, I realized that people in prison, their relationship with time is inverted from how it was for me. Now, instead of having never having enough time in the day, there's way too much time in every day. And you just need to find ways to pass it. So I watched when I would do my workout and I had these, they call it your car. Your car are the dudes you ride with. They're the people you work out with. And the guys in my car would be like, man, chill. Okay. Like we need to take a good minute in between every set. Like the workouts that we did, it would be a three hour long workout because that would take up your whole morning and then it'd be lunchtime before you know it, right? <laughs> That's the yeah. whole point. So I try to remind myself now that I've seen that side of things and think about my relationship with time and take those moments when I'm with my kids, when I'm coaching my girl's soccer game like I was yesterday, when I'm playing ping pong with my son like I was yesterday. And like, just remember that like, this is all going to be gone soon. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You're a professor, author, former senator. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Do you want to plug your book one more time and also the documentary? Yeah. So some people did a documentary about my first campaign. It's called Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? It's sort of like a takeoff on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington because at that point I was still the pure as the driven snow young candidate kind of ruined that storyline when I went to the joint. <laughs> but the real thing that I'm most passionate about now is second chance employment. So let me just plug for a second time, slu.edu slash second chance. If you want to help a nonprofit that is doing fabulous work to try to help people, you know, the one factor that's the biggest factor in whether or not someone's going to go back to prison or stay free is whether they've got a full-time job that they're happy with. That gives them money. It gives them a pro-social support system and a positive environment. And it's time that they're doing the right thing. We got to remember, when we shun people who come out of incarceration, we should only expect that they will be more likely to commit crimes against the community from which they feel alienated. So whether you're a business owner who can hire people whether you're a venture capitalist who could invest in people like Cost Marty, whether you're just a volunteer who could be a job coach for somebody at a nonprofit like TWA, things like this exist in almost every city. I encourage you, don't forget about the two plus million people that are behind bars right now in our society because every year, 600,000 of them are coming home and they're going to appear on the same doorsteps in the same communities where they've already failed once before except now they've got the added stigma of a prison record. So please, to make sure that you and your family are safer and that you've got businesses that have employees and don't have to close and you have people to help make sure that you get, get waited on when you go out to eat, think about those people and not exacerbating all the trauma that most of them experienced 
in their childhood before they ever went to prison and helping them heal through a job or just by being a friend, a supporter, someone to root for them. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, and thank you, Jeff, for being on on The Hardest Stuff. It was an amazing conversation. Thanks for listening to The Hardest Up. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you're enjoying our conversations, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time.